Welcome to Waco Watch, the podcast. I am Dewana McCray. I'm here with Mike Tomasulo and Danielle Williams to talk about the second trial in the VLSI versus Intel case. As you all know, VLSI won a $2.2 billion verdict in the first trial. In this second trial, VLSI was seeking over $3 billion in damages from Intel for Intel's alleged infringement of two patents. Now the verdict is in, and unlike the first trial, unlike the first trial, this was a defense verdict. Both patents were found not infringed, neither was found invalid, and no damages were awarded. Now, we have seen both trials from start to finish with two very different results. Mike, Danielle, while we cannot know why the juries did what they did, what if anything was done differently in this case, specifically the second trial? Dewana, one of the first things that we noticed uh, that was done differently in the second trial was the addition of uh, Professor Wren and Gil Gillum to the trial. Remember, Professor Wren handled the Bordier in the first trial. He did that in the second trial as well. In addition, he cross-examined one of the first uh, VLSI witnesses, and then Gil Gillum cross-examined the second one. So we had early significant roles by Texas-based lawyers on behalf of the defense, which was something that we did not see in the first trial. Mike, did you observe any difference between how Intel characterized VLSI in the two cases? Yeah, Dewana, that's a great question, and I, I really did. Um, I think that a component of being, you know, the defendant in a case, certainly in a case like this, is messaging in some way or another that the plaintiff is not worthy of a significant recovery. And in the first case, it was a theme that came straight out in the opening argument and it was repeated throughout the case and it was hit very hard. And I would characterize it in the first case, Intel told the jury that VLSI was not a worthy plaintiff. And in the second case, they invited the jury to come to that conclusion on their own and more so after Intel had already presented evidence on the substantive issues in the case, i.e non-infringement and the patent is not a, a valid patent. And I think in the first case, VLSI may have been able to characterize the attack on VLSI as an excuse. Intel wants you to excuse its non-infringement because they think we're not a worthy plaintiff. And in the second case, what VLSI, what Intel did in its closing was it demonstrated to the jury, Intel's version of the facts and why there was no infringement and why the patents were invalid and why any damages should be very, very low. And then at the end, after all of that, it contrasted Intel as a company with VLSI as a company, it was done with a much softer touch. Uh, and I, I, I thought that might've been a big difference. Um, so Danielle, in the first case, VLSI presented the live testimony of one inventor but did not present any live testimony in the second case. What did you observe about that and how might that have impacted things? 
Dewana, it's hard to know what the impact was, but what we do know is that VLSI elected not to bring either one of the May brothers to trial or uh, this, the third inventor um, that was part of the, the two patents that were asserted in the case. The witness uh, VLSI elected to bring to trial uh, is a former employee of Sigmatel uh, who was able to talk about the character of the May brothers. Uh, he spoke about how he spent time with them, uh, both professionally and personally, and how he maintained uh, his contacts with them. So it was just a, a, a character witness, uh, some observations about, about these people, and that's the way that VLSI elected to present, uh, present the inventors in, in the second case. In the first case, it was, it was one of the inventors of the asserted patents, and he uh, told a, an interesting story about about the invention and was there to to carry uh, the invention and the invention story uh, to the jury, and we didn't have that in in this case. Mike, the patents in both cases, according to VLSI, led to supposed improvements in power consumption and speed. Was there any difference on how Intel presented its non infringement case? Yeah, Dwana, that's a good point. Both both of the patents uh, in both cases were supposed to have increased speed and at the same time decreased power consumption. That those were important features. So that that was similar, the, the thematic aspect of it. But when it came down to presenting the non infringement case in the second case, let me say this with the caveat that much of the non-infringement case in the first case and the infringement case in the first case was under seal. But in the second case, a lot of it wasn't, and it was seemed to be presented uh, pretty simply. There was, for each patent, a focus on one limitation as a main non-infringement defense, and then I would characterize it as a backup limitation, which also supported the non-infringement defense. So you only had four limitations at issue across the two patents. I thought that uh, that was a bit different. And as far as the method of presentation, in the second case, each side, both sides had one expert per patent and both experts, all of the experts testified as to both the issues of invalidity and infringement. And so that was a bit of a different way to present the issues. So we also saw in the first case that VLSI was able to get information um, before the jury about several large dollar licenses and VLSI's expert, Professor Conti, was able or allowed to discuss at least one verdict in a case where he testified and the jury awarded nearly $500 million. Danielle, in the second case, none of this came in. Um, what happened in the first case as compared to the second case? For example, Mark Chandler, who testified in VLSI's rebuttal case in the second trial was not able to talk about the dollar amounts for any licenses that Intel had executed with third parties. By contrast, in the first trial, VLSI was able to get those dollar amounts in front of the jury. So when I think about it, 
uh, there wasn't any testimony in the second case that would make a $3 billion demand seem reasonable because it was something that Intel may have paid before. And that was certainly what was suggested in the first case when you had the dollar amounts from these other licenses uh, before the jury. And that was certainly something that VLSI could suggest to the jury that while it may not, well, it may for sure be a large amount of money, this is because Intel is the market maker or the largest player in the semiconductor market. So it's a reasonable number. And just look at what Intel has paid in the past for semiconductor technology. In the second case, we didn't have that kind of information before the jury. So VLSI couldn't make that argument and the jury could not have concluded that the damages asked was reasonable uh, in the second case based on Intel's own actions because there, there wasn't any comparison there at all. I'll just jump in and agree with you on that, Danielle. Your observations there are so keen. Who knows what the jury thinks when they hear that Intel has previously paid $1.5 billion to NVIDIA, a, a competitor in the space, or has previously paid, I don't think they were told how much Intergraph, the Intergraph license was, but they were told it was a lot. And who knows, you know, how much of that, the, how much of that, you know, impacts their deliberations or just their view of the world, you know? So I, I think that what you've said is spot on there. I mean, who, who knows, Mike, right? I mean, I, I just, when I think about the overall presentation, I mean, we know for a fact that they didn't reach the damages uh, question on this verdict form because they didn't have to, right? And so what's interesting to me is when that's the last information that they heard in the first trial as compared to the absence of the information in the second trial, does that impact the overall reasonableness of the presentation of either side's evidence? Correct, correct. I'm sure that's right. And I, I would think that Intel was probably very happy that that did not come in and VLSI was probably very happy that it did in the first case. I agree with you. <laughs> Mike, there is also a difference in how Intel told its story of staleness of the patents. Yeah, that's that's correct, Duana. Um, I, I'd say that there was two noticeable differences to me. Number one, in the first case, the, the story of the staleness of patents was, maybe there's three differences, was presented, you know, sort of, as a story of NXP and Freescale and Sigmatel just not using the technology. And so VLSI's response was that to that was through, um, they sort of preempted it and through the NXP witness. He said, well, we don't, it's not our job to keep track of what patents, uh, you know, what patents we're using on our products. We just don't, we don't keep track of that. In the second case, they told the story differently in three ways. Number one, I think they were able to attach it to a consumer device that everybody sort of understood and remembers as a particularly like a product of a bygone era it was the iPod shuffle or other MP3 players. I mean, I, everybody probably had one and nobody could probably find theirs now. Um, and, and so I think that that was a probably a, a more powerful factual connection for the jury to make. I would say number two, 
is that instead of talking about how these patents um, were, you know, worthless because they um, weren't used and were, you know, exclusively tied to older technology, they, they talked about the fact that the patents had been moved from Sigmatel to Freescale when Freescale acquired all of Sigmatel for $114 million. And so that was around the time of the hypothetical negotiation. They said, look, patents have a knowable value. And in the context of that deal, NX, uh, Freescale's patent lawyers assigned only $7 million of value to all of the patents in the um, in the in the Sigmatel portfolio. And so they tried to explain to the jury that patents have knowable values and these patents in particular have been bought and sold several times for low dollars. And while we didn't get to hear for confidentiality reasons what VLSI paid to NXP for the use or for buying the patents, I I believe it well we could certainly know that it was, you know, probably at most a few million dollars and certainly nothing like the $2 billion, $3 billion damages demand. One, two, three. And the third thing that they did was instead of sort of talking about companies abandoning the patents, they talked about the fact that the inventors had abandoned the solutions of the patents. And so these two inventors, the May brothers, wh whose testimony was presented through deposition, they both stayed in the field. The character witness from Sigmatel, as Danielle mentioned, said that they were brilliant guys. They stayed in the same field, working on semiconductors, working on the same aspects of the chip, speed and power consumption, which according to VLSI is a never ending problem in the semiconductor industry. And yet these two supposedly very smart men abandoned their technology. They were never shouting from the rooftop, I've got the answer here. My patented solution is what we should be using today. And so I thought that was a more personal touch to sort of uh, help the jury see in a way that they might be able to personalize that if the inventors had moved on from the technology, maybe it wasn't groundbreaking like VLSI said. And I'll add, Mike, I liked the placement of the review of VLSI in Intel's closing argument as the final word from Intel before VLSI had the final word with the jury. I, I thought that the, the placement potentially could have some impact with the jury because it was in isolation aggregating all of those things that you just described for the jury in a way that they could take that information and draw whatever conclusions they wanted to. Right. Yep. I think, you know, the, and it's just in the category of changes that might not seem that significant, but I suspect that, you know, in bulk, they may have been, of course, different juries, different patents, different expert witnesses, but Nevertheless, you know, one one was a victory and one was not for Intel. So we'll see what happens in round three. I think if we were to say we've you know seen rematches in sports and then we've seen a third matchup and we know that well, we can expect more changes, you know, from both parties. So uh, stay tuned for June, I believe, is when the next trial will be. That's right. And you know what else we might have is a different 
courtroom. Right. Because it's possible that this is going to be held in Austin instead of Waco. Uh, so we'll we'll be uh, following that uh, that fact uh, for for a while. Well, either way, I plan to be there, and if it's in Austin, that opens up some different restaurant options, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Danielle and Mike, um, so much for providing insight on the differences between trial one and trial two. And as you both stated, we don't know um, what, if any of these differences had an impact on the jury, um, but it's all interesting. And we will see what happens in June um, for trial number three. I look forward to seeing how the party's techniques and their arguments change and what if any techniques and arguments remain the same so to all the listeners please tune in next time thanks you all <laughs>